Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, could you please stay with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. And let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word uh, as we look at this passage today. Please help me uh, to be speaking uh, as, uh, as speaking the, uh, the oracles of God. Uh, and we pray that you speak uh, by your Spirit to each of our hearts, uh, helping us to look to Jesus, to love him, to trust him, uh, and to live in the way that you want us to. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sisters and brothers, we are living, aren't we, with sickness and death all around us at the moment. And many of us have lost loved ones or friends over these last few weeks. Uh, people we know and care about have tested positive to COVID-19. Now, some of us have tested positive to COVID-19, and others of us don't know which one will be next. Times like this can cause us to lose focus. But times like this can also focus the mind. There will be some of us who will take this pandemic as a chance to get right with God by repenting of our sins and putting our trust in the Lord Jesus who died for us. If that is you, then you can know God's assurance and forgiveness no matter what you've done in the past and no matter what the future holds with regard to the virus, you can be confident that your eternal future is secure. There will also be those who are already trusting in Jesus, but the pandemic has led us to re-evaluate our priorities. We realize the world is passing away. What is it that's really important? Many of the things that we've been pursuing now seem hollow as we face the fleeting nature of our lives. What is it that we really should be pursuing? And what should we make every effort to avoid? In light of suffering and death, what is it that we really ought to live for? Well, in our passage today, God has one big command for us. He tells us to stop living for human passions and instead to live for his will. Stop living for human passions, but live for the will of God. Right? We'll see that command at the end of verse 2. Verse 3 to 6 will help us to see what it looks like to live for human passions and the folly thereof. Uh, verse 7 to 9 will show us what it looks like to live for God's will and the glory uh, thereof. In fact, verses 7 to 11 will be the case. Uh, and verse 1 and 2, uh, which we will come to in a moment, will give us the basis for doing all this. But to really grasp this, we need to remember where we're up to in the logic of 1 Peter. We've seen in 1 Peter that God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He has given us an inheritance in heaven for us to enjoy. We will suffer now, but it will all be worthwhile when we see Jesus. Uh, and so we need to set our hope fully on the grace that is to come. And as we do, we will conduct ourselves in line with who we are. We are God's holy people. We have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We have been born again through the word of the gospel. We are God's priests offering the spiritual sacrifices of our conduct. And our lives must reflect that. And so the Spirit said back in chapter 2 verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we've seen how to do this as citizens, as servants, as wives, as husbands, as church members, and as people facing hostility for Christ. And we've seen that very often there is going to be a cost. But in chapter 3 verse 17, Peter says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, and for doing evil. And he showed us those two examples last week. Christ, who suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, and is now exalted, the one who suffered for doing good, and the spirits in prison who suffered for doing evil. And we finished last week with a choice. 
follow Jesus and be willing to suffer now if that is God's will, or live for our earthly passions now and face God's judgment in the future. Suffer now for doing good, or suffer later for doing evil. Now, if we belong to Christ, actually we've already made that choice, isn't it? We have renounced the flesh. We have been rescued from the world. We've thrown our lot in with Christ, the innocent sufferer. And since that's the case, then look at what it says to us in verse 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, what does the Holy Spirit want us to think? How does he, how, how does he want us to think? He wants us to think like this. Christ suffered in the flesh, right, in this perishable body. So, I am willing to suffer in the flesh too. I've seen it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I am willing, he wants us to think, to undergo persecution or ridicule or torture or even death to be faithful to him in doing good. I am willing, he wants us to think, to forego revenge and getting even as I follow his example. I am willing to suffer unjustly as an innocent person like he did. I am willing to suffer in the flesh for doing good with him. That is how I am to arm myself to think as I fight against the passions of the flesh that war against my soul. Now, if I am willing to suffer in the flesh for doing good, then surely I must be willing to live in the flesh in a way that is good. I, I can't say I'm willing to suffer for doing good if I live for sin. That's meaningless. If my mindset is abandonment to Christ, willingness to suffer with him for doing good, then I will not be living the rest of my life to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I will live in the flesh, this, this present perishable body, for Jesus. I will live to do the will of God. I will seek to eat, breathe, sleep in order to obey him. That is what Peter, that is how Peter wants us to think. As you live in the flesh, as you live in your body, Live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Are we willing to learn to think that way? Well, you say, yes, yes, I want to do that. But what does it look like? Well, Peter goes on to speak about each of these. First of all, he reminds his readers about living for human passions. Right? His readers know, actually, because that's how they used to live. He says in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality or filthiness, passions or lust, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What he's saying to Peter says that this is this is how you used to be like when you lived for the flesh. Right? When the whole purpose of your life was to indulge in, in your own desires. And well, that's what we used to be like. And that's what about what some of our friends are still doing. In fact, there are maybe some people who are listening today who say they are Christian, but, but may not actually be trusting in Jesus because actually they're still living that way. Are they sleep with people who are not their husband or wife? Are they lustfully and unrepentantly consume pornography as if it's okay? They get drunk with alcohol in, the, in that drunken state, do all kinds of disgusting things. They bow before idols and images and statues and paintings as if they were God. But when they repent and trust in Jesus and change their lives, their old friends don't understand it. They pass all kinds of comments. Oh, so-and-so used to be with us. Now now she's got religion. Oh, he's, he's found God. <laughs> right? And verse 4 says, 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But Peter warns in verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Friends, make no mistake. There is heaven and there is hell. You do not want to be on the wrong side of the judgment. Uh, people who make God's people suffer for doing good while they do evil, well, they will face his judgment. It is better if it, to be, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Suffer for doing good in the flesh is temporary. Suffer for doing evil is eternal. But you might say, hang on, there are also believers who have died. And since death is the wages of sin, then there is a sense that they are being judged for sin with death. So is it really better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? Well, Peter says in verse 6, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Right? The fact that they heard and believed the gospel, presumably back when they were still alive, means that though they are now judged in the flesh, that is, their perishable existence is dead due to the wages of sin, they live on in the spirit that is in the realm of the imperishable. Right? They have been born again of imperishable seed, the, the living and abiding word of God, so that now, even though they are dead, they are alive spiritually with God. And that is why the gospel had been preached to them, so that they could have this imperishable spiritual life. And when Jesus returns, they will be raised, they will be given their physical, spiritual, resurrection body like Jesus. And so vindication doesn't have to come for them in this life. My friends, if you suffer for Jesus, it doesn't matter even if you die. Of course it matters for your loved ones. You know, they'll be distraught, it'll be a terrible, terrible thing for them. And I'm sure you'll feel for them, but ultimately for you, it's no loss. As Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, so you'll be made alive by the Spirit in the end. And so whatever happens, even if you die, it is still better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Well, we've seen what living for human passions looks like. What about living for the will of God? Well, the Spirit paints a picture of that uh, in the next few verses. It's not a comprehensive picture. It just takes four areas and gives one or two points about each to highlight their importance. But, but first, he reminds us at the beginning of verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. This world is indeed passing away. So what should we do? Firstly, we should be a people of prayer. Have a look with me in verse 7. End of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, or you could also translate it in your prayers, or with regard to your prayers. Right? The word self-controlled or sober-minded there means that Paul wants us to be able to think and evaluate situations carefully in prayer. Right? He wants us to pray, and he wants us to do it thoughtfully and appropriately. Now, our prayers aren't meant to be mindless babbling, but considered requests. So don't just say, God, I pray for Mother, or I pray for John, or God bless St. Mary's. What is it about Mother? that you need to pray for. Ask God for it. What does John need that you can ask God for? Be specific. What would you like to ask God to do for St. Mary's? Now think clearly about God, about his purposes, about suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil. Think about the situations that we are praying for and then pray. Now of course there are times we don't know what to pray and God's Spirit helps us with groans that words cannot express. But normally God wants us to be thinking prayers. And so we need to think wisely and soberly in our prayers. The second thing 
we should be as people who love. Now look at verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Right, we know that God is love, uh, and that is from all eternity. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and so love is, is within the very essence of who God is. And we know God's love has overflowed to us, and we see it primarily in Jesus Christ, and especially in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And we know that Jesus commanded his disciples to show that same love. Love one another, he told them, as I have loved you. And Peter, who was right there when Jesus said those words, echoes them to us. Love one another earnestly. Now, there are many aspects to loving one another, but one thing that Peter mentions here in the second half of verse 8 is that love covers a multitude of sins. It overlooks things. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. When you're being loving, instead of looking for things to fight about, you overlook things that you could have fought about. When you love someone deeply, there's all kinds of little things that you just let go. Right? You don't make a big fuss out of them, even though you could. You just ask my wife. She does it for me all the time. Uh, this is not to say that there is no place for loving discipline and confrontation and correction. There is. But there are many times where we could easily offend each other or get on each other's nerves. And in times like this, especially when everyone is stressed, things that otherwise may not have been such a big deal can become a big deal. Because people who are stressed trigger us more easily, and in our stress we are also more easily triggered. Let us choose, when appropriate, to keep our fuse long and lovingly overlook. Love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Thirdly, we should be people who are hospitable. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another. Right? The word hospitable usually means showing care to strangers, but here Paul, uh, Peter tells us to, to show that to each other. Right? Now, hospitality has actually always been an important part of Christian community. Right? Back then, you remember, churches met in people's houses. So, no hospitality means no church. Lah. For the gospel to go out, preachers will travel and stay with believers along the way. Hospitality, very important for mission. And hospitality is still important today. Right before the pandemic, many of our small groups met in people's houses. Uh, being welcoming and hospitable to newcomers was a very important part of our church life. Uh, when we are back on site, then inviting people to lunch or dinner after church will be a great way of, of rebuilding Christian community. And even in the pandemic, we can show hospitality. We can help each other with meals when needed. We can look out for new people in our growth groups. We can take special care to, care, to, to look after people who are staying alone. We, Caring for people in need is also part of hospitality. Right? Someone told me this week how his wife gets calls from people in need every day, and every day she's on the phone trying to help them. Other people have pulled their, their money and efforts to support refugee families in our country with groceries. That's a form of hospitality. Someone else messaged me this week and told me that they have a Zoom room that, we can, that can take 500 people, so that if we want to have a big event or seminar, they're happy to host. That, that too is a form of hospitality, isn't it? Now, of course, our situations will change from time to time. Sometimes we will show hospitality, sometimes we will receive it. But hospitality can be inconvenient. It can cost time and effort and money, and so we've got to do it with the right attitude. If we're going to be hospitable, we mustn't do it grudgingly. We mustn't complain about it. We must be willing and happy to do it for the glory of God and the good of others. The Spirit tells us, um, in, in verse 9, show hospitality, hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. 
The fourth thing Peter, by the Spirit, tells us that we should be is that we should be people who serve. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whatever gifts we've received, whatever ability we have, we've actually received it from God. Right? That gift is a gift of grace, which means we don't even deserve it. In fact, we don't even own it. We've been entrusted with it, like a trustee is entrusted with an asset, not for her own enjoyment, but for the, the benefit of those for whom she holds the asset in trust. And each of us have received a gift, not for our personal benefit, but for each other. And we are to use them, therefore, to serve each other as good stewards, as it says in verse 10, or good managers of the gift that we have received. And how do we do this? Well, Peter actually has two categories of gifts here, the speaking and the serving. There are countless different ways we can use each different different gifts in each category, but, but this is a good and useful division. Right? The speaking gifts are not just about speaking anything, but being able to speak God's word. And the doing gifts are not just about doing anything, but about doing things that serve God's people. Uh, and the Spirit through Peter addresses people with gifts in each category. So the ones who are speaking, he reminds them to be very careful about what they say. He says in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. All right? It's a very serious thing to be speaking God's words. Uh, whether we're doing it publicly, like I'm doing now, or we do it in small groups, or even privately, one-to-one. We shouldn't be speaking just our own ideas, but what God has revealed in the Bible. All right? must never, be, never pretend to be speaking God's word when actually we are not. That would be misrepresenting God, and that would be a very dangerous thing. But if you are gifted in speaking God's words, then use that gifts. I don't, you don't need to wait to be asked to be a preacher or a growth group leader or a kids' church teacher. Uh, speak in your growth group by contributing to discussion in a helpful way. Volunteer to help in Christianity Explored. Or just go and read the Bible with someone, one-to-one, off the grid. But when you speak, take it very seriously. We are to speak as speaking the oracles of God. And then he goes on in verse 11 to address whoever serves. Uh, In our church, you might be invited to serve in some way, but you don't have to wait to be invited. There are so many ways we can serve. Most of them are unofficial. Just look out for ways that you can help God's people grow in the likeness of Christ and how you can help them advance the gospel. Invite people to to online church or to our small groups or the Christianity Explored. Share things on social media. Message people. Check and see they're okay. Anything you can pray for them. Offer to help with admin work even when it's needed. Cook meals or snacks and send them to people who are discouraged. Join a growth group with the aim of working out how you can serve God's people there. And don't forget, when we open church for for on-site services, we're going to need many volunteers to manage things in a COVID-safe way. If you want to serve and you really can't think of how you can, then fill up a connection card and say, I want to serve, but I don't know how. Uh, Someone will get in touch with you. But what does Peter say to those who serve? Verse 11 again. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Friends, we mustn't think, oh, it's only the word ministry that's spiritual. For that, you need God's strength. For the other things, we just do like. No, 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 no. However we serve, we need the strength that God supplies. God is the one who gives us the capacity to serve. Be conscious of that. Remember that. Keep asking him to help you to do whatever task he sets before you. So pray before you do it. And then when you do it, remember that the only reason you can do it is because God gives you the ability to do it. 
And that will guard against our tendency to think that we're doing God a favor when we serve him. As if he's weak, but no, no, we can help him. Right? No, 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 because if we think that way, then we'll be puffed up and we will uh, rob God of the glory that he deserves for the work he enables us to do. So as you speak, remember it's God's word. As you serve, remember it's God's strength. Why? So that, verse 11, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, we noted the best and highest motivation for remaining faithful, even under trial, was so that God would be glorified through this. And likewise today, the best and highest motivation for speaking and serving in the way that Peter describes is to bring glory to God. We are not doing him a favor by glorifying him. We are simply giving him what he is due, what he deserves. For verse 11 says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered and died for you. So in the midst of pandemic, as you reevaluate your life, draw near to him. Stop living for human passions, but live for the will of God. Get rid of sinful behaviors, reorientate your life around Jesus. Seek to be a man or woman of thoughtful prayer, overlooking love, open-hearted hospitality, and faithful service in word or in action, that God may be glorified in your life. For to him indeed belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.